We, we endeavor this morning to begin uh, looking at a, at a new passage of Scripture. Um, I, I feel like our, our last uh, eight weeks or so that we've been looking at Romans chapter 8 has just been so um, helpful and impactful. Hopefully it has been for you as far as um, just looking at what does it look like to, to live in the Spirit, um, to have the Spirit of God um, indwelling you, and what does that look like for uh, for your life? And and so coming right off of that, we're gonna we're gonna jump um, into the Gospels, into the Gospel of Matthew. We're gonna be looking at chapter five, and we're gonna be spending the next six weeks, actually the next eight weeks, um, looking at the Beatitudes, um, the Beatitudes. And and really, when we get to the Beatitudes, you'll notice, um, like starting in verse three. Each one of them begins with the word blessed. Blessed. And, and that makes us think about what, what, is, what does that word blessed mean? And when we think about it from our culture today, when we think of it from a cultural standpoint, uh, excuse me, blessed has become a term to express gratitude for, the, for, for fortunate situations or circumstances. Right, and so this thing has developed over over the social media world, um, which most of you guys are probably familiar with. This hashtag blessed, uh, and so what this would what this would would mean was someone would uh, either post a picture or a story about something that's happening in their life, something that they viewed as a mark of them being blessed, and so they would put the hashtag blessed, right? Uh, and hashtag is just really a way to hyperlink um, whatever you're 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 posting to something else so that if somebody searches for that hashtag they can find a whole list of people that are blessed or, or the way people view things that are blessed and so this this hashtag blessed thing uh became really popular um probably a year or so ago maybe a little bit further back um and people would use it for everything um people would use it uh they would go on a cruise and take a picture of the sunset or them laying out on the beach and they would say hashtag blessed People would, would get a job promotion and talk about, man, I'm just hashtag blessed. Uh, they would post cute pictures of their families. Uh, they would have those rare occasions that their kids were all behaving, and they would put hashtag blessed, right? And, and it really has become uh, this thing that people use to, to brag about themselves, or as, as the social media world would call it, a humble brag, right? I'm going to brag about something in my life, but I'm going to do it with humility, so I'm going to say that I'm blessed, hashtag blessed. And so that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the context today when you talk to somebody. And we probably all have those friends that like everything that happens in life, they're just, I'm just, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I, I had breakfast, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And, and there's a portion of that that's very true, right? We are blessed. And God has, has poured out exceeding blessings upon us. But when we get to this passage of scripture and Jesus says these words, think there's a much deeper and more important meaning behind this word blessed in fact this is this is kind of even got this whole hashtag blessed thing has even gotten to the point that um journalists are writing about it and so one of those journalists a lady named jessica bennett um she wrote an article for the new york times called they feel blessed and i want you to listen to a few of the, the words that she says about this hashtag blessed uh craze that's kind of happening in our world here's what she says she says there's nothing quite like invoking holiness as a way to brag about your life. But calling something blessed has become the go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble, fish for a compliment, and acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited. 
or purposely elicit envy. Blessed, she says, divine or supremely favored, is now used to explain the coveted TED Talk invite, as well as to celebrate your grandmother's 91st birthday. She goes on to say, blessed has reached such heights of overuse that tracking it has become a, a virtual sport. It's, it's everywhere. It's almost as if the internet now exists simply to hate, to have all of these hate messages about the way everyone else's life has been blessed. She, she finishes up by saying this. She said, there's literally no other word that can simultaneously um, inspire such animosity and rapture, right? It's gotten to the point that when, when we see a post and it says hashtag blessed, most of us come into that with a sarcastic, oh great, what is this person going to brag about again, right? And we've lost all context of what this word originally Meant. In fact, I would go so far to say that the word blessed has become the pharisaical language of our day. Um, if you guys remember, the Pharisees, right, in Jesus' time were the ones that talked about how great things were, right? They looked great on the outside, right? And they were so focused on what's happening on the outside as an indicator of their status in their life. And I think we've done that today with the word blessed. We've said, man, I'm blessed. It's gotten even into church culture, right? Uh, we, we've even, it's even been a way of acting or pretending like we have it all together. Um, all with the, with the appearance of humility, right? This even in the church culture gets into the prosperity gospel that says, man, I'm blessed. So that means I'm going to have all of these things that God's going to give me health, wealth, prosperity. Um, man, I view my life as blessed because what is God, God has given me. And I want to say this morning that we need to redefine this hashtag blessed. We need to, and maybe not even redefine, I think what we need to do is we need to restore this word blessed back to its original meaning. When Jesus, when Jesus said these words, right, to a group of his disciples, he said, blessed are, and he would go out to list a, a group of people. We need to get back to what he meant in that moment. And so to do that, and part of our culture at, at Bedrock is, we're not really big on jumping all around scripture. We want to, to dive in. We want to understand the context. We want to understand what happened in that moment. Because I feel like when we can understand what happens in the culture, in the moment that, that, the, that this passage is, is, is being said, who it's being written to, when we can understand those things, it helps us to better understand what it was that Jesus was saying. What it was that the, the writer was trying to communicate when we understand the context, right? That's the big word. And so you will find, if you hang around Bedrock long enough, you will find that every time we start a new passage, a new series, we usually always start out with one week where we talk about the context. Now for some of you, you're like, great, this is history class all over again. I'm already checked out. Let me, let me check the Facebook. Yeah, you're, now you're hashtag, seeing like what's hashtag blessed, you're searching, you're right? Um, some of you others, like me, like this is, this is like bread and butter. I love this week. I love the background. I love the history. I love all of that stuff because I feel like it, it just makes our understanding of the passage so much richer and so much deeper. And so for those of you that this isn't your thing, I would encourage you to listen. You might just get encouraged or inspired by something this morning. For those that are, man, get your notebooks out, get ready because we're going to get through the context and there's a lot that was happening here. And so what, I, what we're first going to look at is, as we look at this moment in history, this moment that Jesus comes onto the scene here, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, uh, and today we're really just going to be going through verses 1 and 2, uh, which probably not a whole lot of 
deep things, but we're going to pull a lot of context out from those. As we look at that, we're going to look at some of the context of what was happening at that time, at that moment that Jesus came on in Jerusalem, what was happening on the scene. And so I, I feel like we are, we are um, I don't know if I should, I was going to say, I feel like we're blessed. I was trying not to say the word. <laughs> we are honored this morning. We get, we get a privilege. Um, Ross is going to come up, and this is, this is like, let me just tell you, Ross, this is Ross's like wheelhouse. This is his bread and butter, man. He, I mean, he teaches history um, at the high school, world history. Um, but what I love about the way Ross teaches at, at high school, but then even just in our in our conversations, is Ross has Ross is one of those guys that can view when he sees these connections between something that happens in history to something that Jesus says. Like to him in that moment, that's worship of seeing how God is is, is orchestrating this whole picture and bringing it all together. And so he's going to come and and bring some of that together for us, paint that picture of of what was happening in this moment. Um, at, at the time that Jesus is, is saying these things. And so, Ross, if you want to come on up, buddy, um, we'll let you kind of do your thing. And I'm going to get to sit and drink coffee for a little bit. Nice. Uh, yeah, so what we're going to focus on is the context leading up to this moment of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so there's a couple of different ways we're going to look, different lenses we're going to look at. The first is the political context of the time period. So uh, kind of where we left off last... Before we got to Romans 8, we were talking about Ezra and how that's the last, that's the end of the Old Testament, really. Story-wise, chronologically, Ezra's the very end. But there's some stuff that happens in there, historically, before Jesus gets on the scene. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, today. So, the main thing uh, is something called the Maccabean Revolt. It revolves around a family called the Maccabees. Uh, and it's important to understand the mindset of the people uh, before Jesus comes on the scene because of this particular event. So the area of Judea, which is where Israel is, that was controlled uh, at this point by the Persians. The Persians are back on the scene. So where we left off with Ezra, we talked about uh, they're controlled by Persia. Uh, in the 300s, 330 or so, they are conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Uh, and then by the end of Alexander's life, by the age 32, he dies. And he has no plans as to what should happen to his empire. So it more or less goes back to the way everything was. It's divided up among his generals. And so Persia comes back into being Persia again and is controlling Judea. So there's a brief window of 30 years where uh, Judea is controlled by the Greeks and not Persia. And then Persia controls it again. Uh, the name is changed because it is uh, the governor that controls it. Uh, and so it's called the Seleucid Empire instead of the Persian. But it, it really is Persia again. Uh, but because of that window where they are controlled by the Greeks, there is a Greek influence over this area of Judea during this time. And we call that Hellenistic or Hellenism. Uh, and so these Jews feel Greek. They enjoy these Greek ideas. And that causes a lot of problems for the people living there at the time. You have the Jews who are trying to stay uh, following uh, the rules that have been put in the Torah uh, and in the Old Testament. But then they also have another group of Jews who are siding with these Greek ideas uh, the Hellenizer Jews. Uh, and so it causes this division between these two groups, um, which are the Orthodox Jews who want to stay with the original ideas, which we call the Pharisees, and then the Hellenizer Jews who like the ideas of the Greeks, and they're called the Sadducees. And we'll get into more of these divisions and what they actually believe in. So eventually, there is this rebellion, this revolt, and it really has to do with the fact that the Persian governor has put in place who the high priest is going to be. Now, the high priest is supposed to be the one that keeps all these ideas of the Torah and the Old Testament and the law that Moses has put into place. Uh, but because he is not, doesn't really care about that, he's more about, concerned about the politics and controlling 
this area of Judea, he doesn't really understand the importance of these laws. So when he comes into power as the high priest over the Jews, he bans the Torah, burns copies of it, the Sabbath is banned, circumcision was outlawed, and ritual sacrifice was forbidden. Which was basically everything that was in the law and what the Torah was supposed to do. Uh, and so there is a rebellion against this high priest that is doing everything the opposite of what he is supposed to be doing. And so in 166 BC, a guy named Judas Maccabee and his rest of his family forms a rebellion. The actual name of Maccabee is a derivation of a Hebrew word which means the hammer. Uh, so this picture of this violent rebellion with, with this family. They go in, they uh, destroy these pagan altars. So part of this too is this high priest put in uh, idols of Zeus in the, the temple. Uh, and so they destroy all of that. Uh, they triumphantly enter Jerusalem to the uh, praise of the crowds. They go into the temple, they kick over the tables, they cleanse everything out of it. Um, and they put a new high priest in power. So if you can picture the scene, right? This is one of those things when they hear Jesus talking about cleansing the temple that's going to be in their heads. This picture of something that's happened in their history. Is Jesus going to be this ultimate high priest that they have been waiting for? Uh, and so this whole incident with the, the Maccabees. Sorry, I, I keep gesturing to it. I'm sorry, it's just a teacher habit. Uh, <laughs> the, the whole thing with the Maccabees restoring the temple is where we get Hanukkah from. So Hanukkah is the celebration of the rededication of the temple that happens after this Maccabean revolt. Um, they light the, uh, the menorah, and they're supposed to be only on oil for one day, and it lasts for eight days, and so that's where you get the menorah with the, the candle. So all of the, the, the whole thing with Hanukkah, by the way, is about the Maccabean revolt and the restoration of this temple during this time period. The question remains, though, so now that they've taken back Judea and the temple, should we continue fighting and kick out the rest of the Persians? Is that what, is that what God wants us to do? And that argument continues to create a divide between the Pharisees, who um, did not support the Persians, and the uh, Sadducees, who did. Part of the reasons why the Sadducees support them is because they retain a lot of political power. They are the elitists in the society, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Not, that really doesn't matter a whole lot because eventually uh, the person that they put in as the high priest, Jonathan Maccabee, another brother of the Maccabee family, is assassinated in 142 BC, uh, and Simon Maccabee takes over. So this, there's like a dynasty of these guys uh, between the end of Ezra and the uh, New Testament. Uh, they kick out all the Gentiles out of Judea, and he becomes this military leader over Israel, which is, again, another picture that people question. Is this what Jesus is going to be like? Is he going to be a military leader like these guys who are taking control over Jerusalem? All that doesn't really come to a lot because then the Romans enter the scene. Uh, in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompeius Magnus, or Pompey as he is known, invades and conquers this area of Judea. This causes a problem because of the way they do it. The historian Josephus records that it's the Pharisees that opened the gates to the Romans to come in to take over because the Sadducees were the elitists that controlled power at the time. So it continues this divide between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that they do not like each other. It also doesn't uh, you know, help his claim that Josephus himself is also a Pharisee. But uh, anyway, over time, and by the time you get to 37 BC, another 30 years later, Herod the Great has been appointed the leader of Israel, and as he becomes more unpopular, 
the Sadducees then start to gain power because the Pharisees were the ones that let him in, put them in power. As Herod the Great starts to do terrible things, they don't like him. The Sadducees now have a gain in power. So there's this constant fighting between these two groups. And so these, as the people are watching this happen, they long for a savior that's going to fix all this. Let, let's deal with these military issues, this the fighting of who's in charge. Um, let's go back to this idea that's originally placed with Judas Maccabee and having this military leader that's going to cleanse the temple, be the ultimate high priest and the ultimate military leader. Okay? But Jesus doesn't come as that. Uh, he comes as a religious leader. And so then they have to start to think about who is, what is going on in the religious sphere of the time. So there's a lot happening. You can go ahead and go ahead, Chad. Okay, so um, before Jesus, there are a lot of claims who, who this religious leader is going to be. And we actually know of them because of the New Testament itself in Acts uh, chapter 5, uh, when uh, I think it's Peter or John, or the group of them are brought into the Sanhedrin. They mention uh, these other false messiahs that have been brought up, and Josephus, the historian, also claims them as well. So two of those examples are a guy named Thutis, who had 400 followers, and he claiming to be the Messiah, encouraged them to follow him. He would part the seas like Moses in the Jordan River, and that would be a, their sign to them that he was the Messiah. He, in fact, did not part the seas to the Jordan, uh, and all his people perished, I guess, because they went into the Jordan, and it, it didn't part. So uh, that, that's one. Uh, two is a guy named Judah the Galilean, and he was there 10 years before Jesus. And one of his main things was that he told them it was shameful to pay taxes to Caesar, that they should not pay taxes. So if you think about in your, in your New Testament, when they ask Jesus the same question, they're thinking back to this example uh, of another guy who claimed to be the Messiah. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And, of course, Jesus answers it a little bit better. This guy, Judah the Galilean, is obviously more on the military side of things, uh, and so he ends up founding a group called the Zealots, uh, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, so there are four main groups of people in this religious sphere that are trying to vie for power that they were looking for for a Messiah to come from. So the first group of people, we said already, are the Pharisees. What these people want is a sage Messiah, someone who's super wise and knowledgeable about not just the text of the Torah, but also all the traditions that have been passed on over time. These groups of people value oral laws just as much, if not more, than the written law. Uh, all these things that have been added to help explain uh, the rules that have been put down in the Old Testament. In Jesus' day, Josephus records there were about 6,000 people that claimed to be Pharisees living in the area of Judea. It's worth noting, too, that these guys are not the bad guys. Um, Jesus never says it's wrong to be a Pharisee. He says it's wrong to be hypocritical. Um, and in fact, Paul was a Pharisee and claims how great it is to be a Pharisee, that it is a, uh, you know, it's good to be invested in the study of the law uh, and to be wise in understanding it. And so it's not wrong to be a Pharisee. Jesus just criticizes the people that are hypocritical. Um, the other group is called the Sadducees, and they are all about a high priest Messiah, someone that's going to come in religiously and fix all these problems. Again, that is because they are elitist. They only believe in the written text. There is, they can't add anything, you can't change anything, they just follow the exact letter of the law, no interpretation, no change to any of it. Um, so they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, they don't believe in uh, heaven or hell uh, because it's not in the Torah, it's not in the law. Uh, so they are very uh, traditional. 
they claim this heritage from the son of Zodak, which is where you get the derivation of Sadducee from Zodak in uh, the, the Hebrew, uh, and that is a descendant of Aaron. So they claim this line of the original high priest of Aaron all the way through, and that's why they have the right to control society. Uh, but it's a small group. In Jesus' day, there are less than a 1,000 people who claim this lineage of the Sadducees. The third group of people are called the Essenes, and they just want to separate from all of this. They want to live outside of society. If you think of kind of like monks, they go off into the hills, they form these little communes, and they're going to study the text and record the text, um, but they're going to separate from society. Uh, so they are waiting for a prophet to come and just tell them what to do, and they will do it. They don't want to take any action or be a part of it. They're actually the guys that write the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've ever heard of that uh, historical text before. Um, and the reason we have it is because it was so secluded and separate from the everything else. And then that last group I already mentioned, the Zealots, they want a military king. Right? They want someone that's going to come in and conquer, kick out the Romans, and control all of this. And they often are kind of the terrorists of Judea of the time. They're the ones actually going out, targeting Greeks and Romans that are living in Judea, uh, and uh, killing them and attacking them. But Jesus doesn't come as any of those things. And that's what confuses people as they're waiting for this Messiah to come. Uh, he comes as a rabbi and a teacher, uh, which I appreciate a lot. Uh, so what he's trying to do is establish this credibility because he's not claiming he's a Pharisee or a Sadducee or an Essene or a Zealot. So where does his credibility as a teacher come from? In an earthly sense... It comes from his study of the text. So in Jewish culture, uh, all boys uh, of every age would study the Torah. So until age 13, you went to school and you memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Memorized, like you had to recite the entirety of those five books. You had until age 13 to be able to do that. Um, and so every day you would study, you would practice. So they knew it by heart. So when Jesus makes references to these things, it's not lost on these people. Um, even the least educated people knew that text. Um, so by age 13, you, you graduate. If you have a natural uh, ability to do this, you seem to enjoy it, you can continue. Uh, and you enter the next phase of schooling, where you start to memorize the rest of the Old Testament, which is all the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, all of that. And you get two more years to do that half. I guess once you've gotten the first five with all the laws and the, you know, you're pretty good at doing it by then, the rest comes easy. But you have until age 15 then to memorize the rest of the Old Testament. Not many people can actually do that. It takes a lot of devotion and study and honestly a lot of money so you don't have to be out working. You're home doing that where, the, where your parents are uh, running everything. And so not many people can actually do that. If you can't do it, you enter the workforce which is interesting when we think about the fact that Jesus goes to Peter, James, and John, who are fishermen. It means they flunked out, and they didn't get this far. Uh, so, uh, right. Uh, so it's all the more meaningful when he says to them, like, I choose you as my, my followers, as a rabbi, uh, because they were not, you know, the cream of the crop at all. So if you, if you are good, you get it, you graduate. By age 15, you've memorized the Tanakh, you move up to the next segment of the process. Uh, where you get to become what's called a Talmudine. Um, and that is basically the word for student, but we translate it as disciple. Uh, you are a student of the rabbi. So you, your job is to follow, pick a rabbi and follow him around for 15 years learning what it is like to be a rabbi. Um, 
you want to become just like the rabbi. So they follow him everywhere, uh, into the bathroom, into crowds, just everything that he's doing. They want to learn exactly what it's like to be like the rabbi. But it doesn't mean they are a rabbi. Eventually, uh, if he actually likes you and thinks you have talent, he'll say, come and follow me. Uh, before that, I mean, they are all following him, but against his will. I mean, they're just doing it, trying to be like a rabbi. Uh, he doesn't actually give them the invitation until much later, uh, until age 30 or so, uh, when they, they start to actually get it. Uh, he actually wants them to be in this inner circle and be part of um, what he's doing. So after years of following this rabbi, eventually he would say to them, go, and now you make Talmudim, you make disciples, uh, and you get to become this rabbi now, right? Uh, or he would say, you know what, we've been doing this for 15 years, You're not, you don't got it, try something else, uh, this isn't working for you. Uh, but regardless, no matter what, the rabbi is the one that chooses people, uh, and they, after they have decided to follow him for a while, then he gives the invitation to come and follow me. And what uh, should be striking about this uh, is that Jesus does the opposite, uh, is that he goes to them at age probably 15 uh, and says, come and follow me right then at age 15. And so it makes sense when we read the text that they drop their nets and follow him. Like this is the opportunity of a lifetime that they have missed out on. And so uh, also all the more interesting too is that, you know, five, year, ten years later, uh, when he says to them, go and make disciples, that's also pretty striking because they don't have the skills or the knowledge that everybody else would have at that time. Um, so Jesus comes as a rabbi uh, to actually bring about this new plan of the upside-down kingdom. So finally, who are the crowd? So if we're thinking about the whole context of this, we're thinking about who is Jesus going to be talking to. We actually get a good indication of that from... Uh, the previous verse before Matthew 5. So in Matthew 4.25, it says that a great crowd followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So historically what we know about these places is that the area of Galilee is made up of small fishing communities. So you have areas um, where that, that's all they're doing, uh, small fishing areas, which is where a lot of the disciples end up coming from. So from Bethsaida is where you get people like Peter and John that instance where Jesus goes to talk to them. The Decapolis uh, is a series of seven cities uh, that are all Greek cities, still influenced from that period. So they are probably Greeks that are coming from that area. Jesus will cross the Decapolis uh, a couple times in the New Testament. And then Jerusalem and Judea are these Jewish city dwellers, and the fact that they are out on the side of a mountain and not in the city indicates they're probably not working at that time. So they are probably homeless or out of a job or just have the free time to be able to go to this place. And then the area that's known as beyond the Jordan really refers to rural communities, small farming areas uh, that are in those areas. So what this tells us as we get into the actual story of the Beatitudes is who this crowd is. They are the poor, the social outcasts, and the non-influential people. They are not the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these people that they're going to be looking, that they've looked to in the past uh, as a potential of where the Savior is going to come from. So, for our discussion question to start off uh, this uh, series, what we'd like to talk about is put yourself in these people's shoes. If you are sitting there waiting to hear Jesus speak, think about all the things that I've just talked about. What kind of Savior would you be hoping for? 
Are you hoping for this sage Messiah that's going to come with wisdom, a Messiah that is a prophet that's going to fix everything and you don't have to do anything? Are you hoping for a military leader? Are you hoping for the ultimate high priest? All right. So hopefully that painted a picture for you because I think that's really helpful that we understand like what is the you know, what is the terrain that when Jesus shows up, what does it look like? Um, we had a really interesting conversation back in our group of how it's funny, almost from a political standpoint, it, it looks very familiar to our world today. When you think about the hope that people put into the president of the United States, right? And they're hoping that he can be a military or an economical leader or this and that and the other, right? Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of different things happening, right? They were being controlled by another country, so, so I said in our group, that would be like if we got taken over and controlled by Canada and we had to pay taxes to Canada, right? Like what that would be like. We would have a completely different view and that would go into who we're looking for. And so as, as we're going to see, they're looking for, a lot of them are looking for this kind of military leader to get them out from the, from the thumb of, of Rome. And so that's kind of their focus, uh, which is why a lot of them count Jesus out early on because he comes with a very different message, um, and that message is a message of hope, as, as one of the people in our group said. If you are, if you are poor and you're the outcast and, you, um, and, and you've been counted out by the rest of the world to live in these places where the crowd comes from, you're looking for hope in something. And that's the message that Jesus brings. It's this incredible message of hope. And so that's kind of the, the, the situation that's happening here as Matthew records his gospel to us, as Jesus comes onto the scene. Um, and, and so specifically, uh, the, the context right before Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus has been baptized in chapter 4. Uh, he began his public ministry. He was baptized. He goes and he's, he's tested in the wilderness, right? And then he calls his first dis- disciples. And then he starts going out and preaching and healing all, all over the place. He's just going from place to place, preaching the good news and healing people. And so then we get to, to what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And the Sermon on the Mount, is, it's, it's an interesting and, and like incredible portion of Scripture because uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you will find probably some of the most uh, popular, I say from a, from a worldly standard, popular Jesus sayings. Things like love your enemies, things like the golden rule. Um, Jesus is teaching on um, divorce. Jesus is teaching on... Um, what it looks like to, um, you know, uh, in your, in your life, how you live your life out. A lot of those things, um, Jesus is going to teach on lust, uh, oaths, um, retaliation. All of these things are found in there. Um, and so, and so Jesus goes up, um, to the mountain and retreats away, which is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and, and really the, the theme, if I had to put a theme on the Sermon on the Mount, um, it would be this, is that we should be, followers of Jesus need to be different than the world. That we need to be different than what the world looks like. And, and he's going to go, uh, we're not going to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount, um, which would be incredible if we had time to, but um, that there's just so much. We would be doing that for like, I don't know, the next five years. There's just so much good stuff in here. Uh, but throughout, he's going he's gonna to have this idea that, um, that, that followers of Jesus need to look different than the world. There's, there's something that's different about us than the rest of the world. Um, there's a different hope. There's a different thought in our minds. So let me just ask, I'm going to throw this out to the group, and, and you guys just feel free to answer back to me. We're not going to get in groups. Um, but think about this for a minute. 
If you were to sum up, what was Jesus' main message that he spoke in the Gospels? Okay? If you had to think back through the Gospel, the stories you've heard of Jesus, what is his main message, do you, would you say? If you had to put it down to one central message. Just throw them out. It's all right. Love one another. Okay, love one another. Okay? Love and, and care for one another. What else? Anybody say something else? Seek the kingdom first. You were reading my notes, weren't you? <laughs> Seek the kingdom first, okay? What else? Redemption. Redemption. Okay. Anything else? Repenting. Repentance. Okay. Okay. So this, this idea that Son of God, especially if you read John's account of the gospel, Son of God, Son of Man, I'm the promised Messiah. Okay. Okay, so Jesus is God, this Yahweh God. He's comparing himself and saying, I am, I am that. That God that, that called you out from slavery and bondage, that's me. I'm, I'm that now wrapped in humanity and flesh. And those are all great things. And those are all, I think, um, Jesus talks about those and those are all, all main things. Um, but one of, the, one of the messages that you would hear Jesus say if you were in this crowd, wherever he went, he's going to talk about the idea of the kingdom. The kingdom. And, and we don't get that well today because in our mindset today, we don't understand kingdoms. Today, it's just like when we think kingdom, we think fairy tale world. We think Disney princess and, and you know, the, the, the knight comes and rescues the damsel in distress. Like that's what we think in our minds. We think magic kingdom, right? Like well, that's, that's where our minds goes. But Jesus would go and talk about the kingdom over and over. That was his message. In fact, if we go to places just prior to this, like Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus is going to say this. He's going to say, uh, it's going to say, from that time, this is, this is Matthew recording, from that time Jesus began preaching and saying, okay? And so this is the beginning of his public ministry. He starts, and the first thing he says is repent. We've talked about that several times in here, right? This idea of turn from your sins. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, later in verse 23 of that same chapter, it says, and he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction uh, that the people had among them, right? And, and this idea of the kingdom, that God's kingdom was now coming to earth, um, that, that this kingdom of, of humanity had been on the scene, but now the kingdom, and in some places we'll call it the kingdom of heaven, some places we'll call it the kingdom of God, all the same thing, right? But this kingdom is now coming down. And so uh, what I want us to do is take a couple of, of minutes in our time, as I threw stuff across, um, to talk about this idea of kingdom. Kingdom. What in the world is a kingdom? And so um, I think Ross and what he said set us up really well to understand this. So what would happen in that time and that culture is, uh, let's say there's an area here, and let's say, um, let's say this is this is Jerusalem, right? This is a, a major kind of city, a big area, whatever, something like that. And there's a kingdom that's ruling this, right? Maybe it's the Persians. Maybe it's the Romans. Maybe it's one of these other powers that come in, right? And there's always a kingdom that's ruling over this area, right? Well, when another kingdom comes in, it's not like they're like, hey, let's be friends and you can take this half of the kingdom and I'm going to take this half of the kingdom, right? What happens? The old kingdom, whoever that was, is kicked out, right? And then now this new kingdom comes in, right? Comes in and is ruling and reigning um, over 
over this area, right? I want you to get that in your minds as you think about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that now this kingdom, right? You've been living in this kingdom of humanity uh, ever since Genesis chapter 3, really, where humanity has been making these awful decisions and choices and, and, and leading themselves further and further away from God. Now this, this promised kingdom of God, it's here. It's coming. Get ready. And that's what he's proclaiming is that it's good news. We're no longer under the rule of sin and death. A lot of what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, the old flesh and the sin and all that's associated with that, that's, gonna get, that's getting kicked out in this new kingdom, right? And Jesus is the one that is coming to bring the new kingdom as the Messiah. But here's the interesting thing, and this is what I got wrong for so many years of my Christian life that I never understood. So Jesus comes with an upside-down kingdom. Ross referred to that a few minutes ago. Jesus comes with an upside-down kingdom. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. All right? So the world, let's just call it the world. That's a good name. The world, as we know, okay? And the world is... The world is right-side-up. The world is right-side-up kingdom. And here's what I mean by that, right-side-up. In the world, okay, in our world, in the world, right, who is the most significant person? The powerful. Yes, me. It's the powerful. It's, it's the ones that are successful. Ruthless. Ruthless, right? that are cutthroat, that are willing to do, the, the strong, right? These are the ones that we say in our world, like those are the people. Those are the movers and shakers. Those are the ones that we look up to. Those are the ones that should be leading, right? That's our mindset. In fact, we even have a phrase for this. We call it the, the American dream, right? And the American dream goes something in this way. If you work hard enough, you do enough, you can get any, accomplish anything you want in this world, right? It's a very, it's a very human-centered way to look at the world. Um, and we, we hold that up in great esteem. And so there may be a person, and, and they may have a great accomplishment. They become re- really, really rich in our world, right? And we say, man, that person is self-made, right? They worked hard. They put in the hours. They deserve what they're getting, right? And we elevate this. And we say, in, in this kingdom, we're like, that is the goal. That is who you want to be. You want to be the powerful person. Now, the perspective, okay, the perspective in the right side of kingdom, as far as as you look at the world and what's important, it's always focused on the immediate, right? It's focused on the immediate. It's focused on the present, right? What is it that in this moment that I can accomplish? What am I working toward right now? What is tangible that I can touch that's right in front of me? That is the most significant thing, right? And so the, the right side up world looks at that and says, you know, this is, this is all that's there. That's what's important is what I can see and touch and feel in this moment. Finally, the focus the focus of the right side up kingdom is one of make sure I do this right is one from the inside or from the outside in okay so imagine this for a minute got a little person right and this person will we'll make it right right because we all know the heart's red person's got a heart right all okay right 
But the right side up kingdom says that all of this stuff that I can do, this American dream, this power, success, being strong, all of these things from the outside in affects me telling me my worth and my value. It's based on what I can feel, touch, do. All of that says I'm valuable. I'm important. You work hard enough. I earn enough money. I get enough respect. That means I'm valuable enough. It's an outside-in mentality of focus on what it means in this kingdom. Jesus, on the other hand, comes in with a very different perspective. Jesus, this kingdom that Jesus is going to talk about, that he's bringing... need to take a handwriting class, right, is an upside-down kingdom, right? It's an upside-down kingdom. So who is it that Jesus says is important, right? It's not this group. It's the, it's the weak, weak, poor, powerless. It's that group. It's that crowd that Ross just talked about. Right? It's, it's not the movers and shakers in the world, but it's the outcast. It's the one the rest of the world said, you know what? You're not going to be a rabbi. You can't memorize. You're not good enough. And so we see what's so amazing when Jesus calls his disciples is he picks this group. He picks the weak and the poor and the powerless. Right? So what is the perspective? Perspective is the future. It is eternal i'm not as concerned about what i can feel touch taste right now as i am about what's going to be for eternity that's the message jesus comes with right it's, it's, it's not so much about how rich or wealthy i can get in this moment but what i can give away to make an eternal impact on this world right this this person the upside down thinking realizes that life is short in comparison Life is short. It's just a blip, right? And everything that I do in this short life should build toward eternity to something that's, gonna, that's not going to have an end to it. And so in this picture, right, same person, right, same heart. But in this picture, it's instead of being an outside in, it's an inside out mentality. So these things of who I am, how I see the world, what's important, what's valuable, all of those shape everything else in the world, right? It's not just based on what I can accumulate or what I can gather up for myself, but my, my attitude and my heart and whose I am. The fact that I am a child of God, that I belong to him, is going to influence everything else in life. It's not the other way. And so as we, as we dive into understanding as, as, as you see what Jesus is going to say in the coming weeks in these passages, in these, in these Beatitudes, he's bringing an upside-down kingdom, which is why the people in Jesus' time didn't get it. They were looking for this. Now, whether that was a military leader, whether that was a prophet, whatever, they were looking for this, and Jesus came with this. And so our challenge is, and what we have to start thinking about is, it's an upside-down kingdom. What is that? How do I start looking at my world upside down? How do I start taking things that I normally view in a certain way? Because we're all a product of our culture and our community, right? We're <coughs> social media, um, our friend circles, our influences, the places that we go. We're a product of, of, of what we spend our time around. 
And so just naturally, we think this is what it's all about. This is the reason we work a bajillion hours, right? Because we think that if I can just pile on enough of this stuff, then it'll be important. This is the reason that we, um, that we value um, different, different things. You know, if I just have enough money, if I just, I'll be secure, I'll be happy if I just have enough money. Versus a contentment and happiness comes from who I am, and I'm going to let that affect the world around me and inside out. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that inside out here in just a minute. But, but so when Jesus talks about the kingdom in this context um, of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about it in an upside-down way. It's a shift, which is why I love the, the graphic. If you notice, um, Chad, give that main, the main blessed one. Um, I love this picture, right? It's the idea of upside-down, right? This, this upside-down mountain. And that's what this idea of when Jesus is going to say that you're blessed, it's an upside-down thinking of what we naturally think about in that moment, okay? So let me just talk real quickly about the Beatitudes, um, because this is important. This is, again, context. As we go through these each week, this is important that we understand this. Uh, Number one uh, thing that's important for us to understand is that the Beatitudes, here is Jesus is going to teach on these, and as we're going to talk about these each week, is that they're a package deal, okay? I used to think that the Beatitudes were, so you have a person who is poor in spirit, and then over here you have a person who is who, who mourns. And over here you have a person who is um, who is meek, and a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And I thought it was just a Jesus was giving. If you're this type of person, then here's your reward. If you're this type of person, then here's your reward. Um, one of the things that I've come to understand in, in recent years, and, and John MacArthur, um, incredible, incredible theologian, man of God, um, has has really talked a lot about this. Um, but he said that these are all a package deal. You don't pick and choose. This is a mark of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We should be all of these things. And in fact, these will be building blocks, uh, one upon each other. And so as we start out each week, um, we're going to see that these will build upon one another. And they're important as we try to progress in in being followers of Jesus and what that looks like. So they're a package deal. Um, As one person says, it's not that some manifest one character and others another. No, every Christian is meant to be all of them and to manifest all of them at the same time. And so this is a call for what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Um, much like much like when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? That we're supposed to have all of those, right? We don't get to pick and choose which fruit we like, but we're supposed to have all of those. In the same way, these Beatitudes should mark the follower of Jesus. Secondly, right, these are not just for an elite class of Christians, right? These are not just for the people who look like they have it all together, These are not just for the people who have memorized the Old Testament. This is not just for the religious, astute people who can quote off 100 Bible verses um, off the top of their head. Right? This is an expectation for all believers. It's a description of what every Christian is meant to be. Uh, It is not merely a description of some exceptional Christians. And so that's, that's challenging. As we go through each one of these, you have to realize that I don't get an excuse not to be, if I'm a follower of Jesus, like this should mark my life. This should be things that are growing in my life, and that's the beautiful part of church and community is that we get to come around each other and encourage each other to be like this. Finally, as we look at the Beatitudes, we need to realize that this isn't something that naturally happened, but this is this, the, the mark of a spiritual uh, person, a person who the Spirit is, is filling that person's life. It's where the Spirit comes in and does His work in our lives, like we just talked about in Romans chapter 8. Right? Because it's easy sometimes for us to get confused because some people are just naturally 
um, more kind of wired um, and personality towards some of these. So there are some of you here that when you know that somebody's going through a hard time, just naturally, you just, man, your heart breaks for that person. You know, you're crying because that person beside you is crying, right? You just, I mean, you're so emotionally connected to other people and you have such a bleeding heart for other people that you just naturally mourn, right? You're just a natural mourner with other people. There's some that are just naturally meek, right? And it's not about them and they don't want the lot and like they're just a naturally meek and humble person, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about natural who we are. This is talking about spirit-empowered uh, attitudes and heart changes, right? Um, this, is, this is talking about how as a believer, I don't get the excuse just because I'm not, just because I don't sympathize with people doesn't give me the excuse not to uh, care for what's happening in other people's lives, to not be broken over my own sin in my life. And so this is a work of the spirit, not just some sort of personality that we've had. And so these beatitudes are progressive. Each one leads to the other in a logical succession. That's what John MacArthur says. So it goes kind of like this. Uh, we go into that next slide. I think we have them on there. So being poor in spirit reflects the right attitude in our sinful condition, right? So that's the baseline is that we have to understand. And we're going to go through each one of these every week. But, but baseline is we have to understand that like, in our sinful condition, we got to be broken. Like, we have to, to realize and acknowledge and be broken over our sin. That's the baseline, right? And when you've done that, then we go on to the next one, which is then we should, should be able to, to mourn over those sins. Like, we should be able to, to feel guilt and shame and, 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 and confess those sins, right? We should mourn over the sin in our lives and the sin in the world, our sinful condition, which then should lead us to the next, which is to be meek and gentle, to realize that it's not about me. Okay, it's not about me, but I, but I should be meek and gentle. Well, where does that lead us to? Well, if we, if we get meek and gentle and realize it's not about us, it's going to lead us to a hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Because of, cause we are broken, that should lead us to a place of wanting to be righteous and to be like God. Which then, once we have that righteousness, then we're able to be merciful to people, to help other people in need, which will lead to a pure heart when we realize we get the focus off of us and onto other people which then will allow us to be uh, peacemakers in this broken, uh, chaotic world. And finally, where we're going to go to kind of wrap all of that, right? When, when we have all of these attitudes, when we put all of those on, that's going to help a Christian um, when persecution comes from the world, but it's also going to help us to be a light to the world around us as well. And so that's going to be kind of, that's the picture of where we're going over the next eight weeks or so as we look at these. Um, and we're going to talk about how each one adds to the next. And so what we'll do is we come in each week and as you look at the Beatitudes, Jesus will give a blessing. So next week we'll be blessed are the poor in spirit, right? So that's the perspective is what does it mean to be poor in spirit? We have a really simple outline coming up for the next eight weeks, right? I know the last couple weeks we've had like three or four points, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. What's the perspective? Poor in spirit, okay? And then there's a promise for those that are poor in spirit. Here's the promise that God's going to make for that be a real simple outline, but it's going to give us a lot of time to talk about what does that practically mean in our lives. And so that's kind of the picture of where we're going, right? That's where we're going. And so today, we're going to, like I said, we're going to just be looking at two verses, and they're really, really not a whole lot of meat there sometimes when we look at those. Um, but if you'll, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we're just going to read, this is the introduction, this is Matthew's introduction to what happens before Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
Probably not a bumper sticker we're going to put on our car today, are we? Right? But there's some, there's some significant things that, that are important to us, right? Ross talked about the crowds a few minutes ago, right? So, so in your mind, right, there's these crowds, and then Jesus goes up to the mountain. Now, now the commentators and, and, and theologians are kind of like, they go back and forth of why he retreated. Either he was trying to get away from the crowds um, so he could just focus on his disciples, or he moved to a more open, elevated place where the, all the crowds could hear what he has to say, Right? But his audience, as, as we see in these verses, right, is his disciples, right? It's his disciples that come to him. And that's important for us to understand because it's his disciples that he's expecting to live this way. And this is, important, this is an important warning I think we start out right now is to understand that these Beatitudes are meant for people who are following Jesus. In fact, I, would, I think it's unfair and, and even impossible to put these expectations on someone who's not following Jesus. Because these are, these are, these are upside-down kingdom attitudes. It's not going to make sense. If you're living to be powerful and successful and strong, the idea of being merciful and meek and, and caring for other people, like that's not going to make sense in your world. These are for those that are living in the upside-down kingdom. They realize that it's the poor and the weak and the powerless that's, that's focused on eternity. Right, And so it's really easy sometimes for us as Christians to put that expectations on people that we know that aren't believers, right? And, and to really um, look down on them, uh, maybe even in a pharisaical kind of way, on people who down them. So it's important. Jesus is talking here to his disciples. He's talking to those that are in the kingdom, the broken and the poor. But at the same time, what we're going to see is the crowd was still there. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd is going to look around and they're going to be astonished at what Jesus said. They're going to be amazed at what he had to say. And so it's kind of one of those moments that Jesus was directing to his disciples, but he was also aware that the crowds were around him. And so this sets up um, what I believe is a, a really good picture for what it means to be a disciple, right? Uh, Ross talked about that word. Um, what was the word, Ross? Thank you. I'm glad I didn't have to say it. That word, or as I would say, disciple, um, right? To be a follower of Jesus. This is going to be a picture of some of the attitudes of a follower of Jesus. This is what, what my life should look like. The word for disciple that, that they use uh, predominantly in the New Testament is the word mathetes, right? You want to say that? That one's easy to say. Mathetes. Mathetes, right? That's a good, that's a good word. Um, and mathetes literally is one who binds himself to someone else in order to acquire his practical or theoretical knowledge, right? It's someone who is, who's a, literally, it means a follower. Someone who's going to follow someone so that I can be like that person, right? I just, I just thought about this. It's like the old saying of, uh, I want to be like Mike. You guys remember that? Some of you guys from the, back in the 80s and, and, the, and the early 90s, right? I want to be like Mike, like Michael Jordan, right? And if I buy his shoes, then I'll be like Mike and I can do that. Um, it's this idea, if you want to be like Jesus, then you're going to be a, a mathetes, a disciple. You're going to bind yourself to him. It's the idea in Matthew chapter 4, 19, when Jesus calls his disciples and he says, come follow me, right? That's a disciple. That's a follower. It's someone who is following after the great master. And that's what we're called to do. And so this is a message for us today, as much as it was for his disciples and those that were following him back in this period of time. And so uh, I think it's important, though, that we, that we flush out at the beginning, what does it mean to be a true disciple? a true follower of Jesus, right? And in the Bible, in a few places in the Gospels, the Gospel of John specifically, um, they kind of flesh this idea out. Um, what are true disciples? How does Jesus define a true disciple? Um, and so one of those is in John chapter 8. 
31 through 32. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews uh, who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. Right? Uh, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's this idea of, of being people of the word. That's how, we, that's how we know what it's like to follow Jesus, because we have his word. And so we're going to be rooted in that as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus. But then also in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, it says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. So another mark of a disciple, of a follower, is that there's this fruit in our lives. Right? This fruit we're producing. We're starting to look like the one we're following. Right? Um, I mean, think about it. Um, if, if you were shadowing somebody for a job, right, and, and you approached that job and you did the exact opposite, right, you did the exact opposite of what that person did, would you look like you were trying to be like that person? Not at all, right? And so our lives need to start to look like this upside-down kingdom mentality that Jesus is bringing in, these beatitudes, these attitudes that Jesus is bringing in. So I know I've talked for a few minutes, um, but this is important. Um, discipleship is a huge to us here at Bedrock. Um, we hang the majority of what we want to do and our time and our energy on this idea of being a disciple and following Jesus because it's what he's called us to do, right? And I just can't see doing church or anything else any other way other than following Jesus and making other followers of Jesus. It's important. It's huge, right? So um, let's take a few minutes. Um, in our groups, we can give you guys a minute to just kind of reset from, from soaking in all of this upside-down stuff. And I want you to uh, ask this question. Up to this point in your life, do you feel like the word, um, do you feel like the word disciple describes you, right? Do you feel like that you are a disciple? Uh, where are you in that journey? And you know what? If you're like, hey, I'm still trying to figure that out, that's, this is a great place to ask those questions. You're surrounded by people who are not going to judge you and look down on you, but are going to say, man, let me just show you what I'm learning right? You might say, you know what? I am a follower. I'm, I'm following, but man, there's a season. I've been in a season where I've just kind of gotten lost. I've got spun around and I'm kind of going somewhere different and I need to get back to this. Let me tell you, this is where you need to be for that too, right? People who care about you and love you are going to walk with you, right? So let's just take a few minutes, answer that question. Um, if that word disciple describes you, um, and then we'll come back and wrap up with understanding this idea of blessing, what that word really means. But I want us to I want us to get back to um, understanding uh, what this um, what this idea of blessing meant. Um, one other one other point from the note that I that um, I just I found is interesting, and maybe you did as well. Um, but notice uh, in verse two of chapter five, it says when he went up to the mountain um, and and when he sat down. Right, and so Jesus sets down, and just one of the things that history will tell us is that is the position um, that a rabbi would take. The rabbi would sit, and the audience would stand and listen to them. Um, so I thought about for the next eight weeks, we could do that. I could bring a chair up here and sit, and have you guys stand for the whole hour that we're doing this. And I thought just to give you guys a little bit of understanding of what it was like. Um, but uh, but I just I, no, we're not going to really do that. Um, mostly because I can't sit still for that long. <laughs> but but I think it was an interesting point just to understand that, that, that in that moment, like that was, that was why he did that, why he sat, was because that was, that was kind of the cultural way for a rabbi to teach. A lot of times he would sit down and the people would stand and listen to what he had to say. Um, but in the rest of our time today, I want us to really understand and get around this idea, this biblical idea of what does it mean to be blessed? All right, what does it mean, what does it mean for me to be, to be blessed? Um, and, and we, we talked about at the beginning the idea of blessed. Um, 
But what does the Bible mean? What is what is what is what is Jesus saying here? If you look through uh, the next uh, from verse three all the way down to verse eleven, um, he's going to talk about bless, 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 bless. Right? What does that mean? What does the Bible mean by the word blessed? Well, um, we know that the biblical word uh, for blessed is makurios. Um, makurios. Um, it's that one. It's in a title chart there. And it has more to do with the idea of an inner satisfaction and sufficiency than it that does not depend on my outward circumstances for happiness, right? So literally, the word bless, okay, and, and, and this is probably why we get it all. It, it it literally, if you were to just define it literally, literally, it means to be happy, right? But it's not happy in the context of we think happy, right? We think happy is smile on my face, everything's great. There's a bird chirping, like right, because everything in life is good, and that makes happy. But this is the biblical definition. It's an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that doesn't depend on those things, right? Um, it is, it is as, as one has said, uh, it is the person who is free from the daily cares and worries because every breath and circumstance is the, in the hand of his maker who gives him such assurance, right? It's, it's not based on positive circumstances, but it's based on an inner, inward satisfaction, uh, inward lives that are rightly aligned uh, with, our, with our creator, with God, and with the one that we follow. So it has little to do with what's happening in the world. It has little to do with how much money and, and, and things that I have. It has little to do with how great things are going right now in life and the ebbs and flows. It has everything to do with this, this contentment, right? I want you to get that in your mind, this idea of contentment, that I am content not based on circumstances but based on who I am. And so this is a phrase that we're going to use throughout this series, um, and, and hopefully it makes sense because I came up with it. And if it doesn't, then just appease me. Um, but here's what we're going to say. We're going to say in, a, in an upside-down kingdom, being blessed happens from the inside out. All right? So in Jesus' kingdom that's upside-down, what it means to be blessed means more about what's on the inside than what's on the outside. And what's on the inside is then going to affect the world that I see on the outside. And so let's just um, let's just real quickly um, do this together. I was gonna break it into groups. We're gonna do this together, okay? Um, all right. What are when we think about the word happy? What are things from the outside that make us happy? Money, money, and lots of it, right? What else? We got those dollar bills. Okay. Just to say possessions. Okay. What? Purpose. 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 A lot of times probably defined by these things, right? Purpose that I can get these things, be successful, be these sort of things, right? From out. What else? Healthy. Healthy. Health. Is that the mark for health? I think it is. <laughs> no. Ooh. Health. There you go. All right. What else? Okay. Image. Youth. Youth. Does that mean being around youth or yeah. being youthful? <laughs> yes. Um, people. Relationships. Yeah. 
Relationships. I think the type of ship you want to be, right? Bad picture jokes there. Um, Experiencing this world on travels. Okay. Experiences. Experiences. All right. So now look at food. That's part of that's part of that's part of experience, right? Some great food, right? So we would say if you have these things, more of these things in your life then you're, you're happy, right? You're a happy person, right? What about, what about inside, like inner contentment things? What does that look like to, to understand it from that perspective? What does happiness look like? What is a peace, okay? Great. Contentment. Contentment. Con- confession. Confession. Okay. Eternal security. Ooh. Okay. Love. Say love. Yeah. Love. Okay. And notice the difference. I didn't. I didn't prompt you guys for any of this, other than just giving you a brief definition. But notice the difference. All material. All stuff. All stuff that's burned up. That's got an endpoint. Attitudes, heart, inward stuff, right? Important, valuable, more of who you are than what you have, right? This is where we're going. This is how we're going to define what it means to be blessed is the inside out, those things. And, and what happens is that when we fill our lives with those things, then that, that inside will start to affect the outside. It will start affecting what we do. When we look at our lives and we want peace, not just with us, but, but with God and with other people, we allow that to influence our relationships. We allow that to influence other things. Um, confession, security, all love, all of those things change who we are, not just what we have. Okay? And so, and so this is the inside-out uh, way to look at things. And see, the, the problem is, the problem is that it's, it's an external problem, right? Because of sin, um, we, we look at it, we look at the issue as if it is external, right? We think if we just get enough of these things, then life's going to be okay. But the true problem is the internal problem, right? We know that. We know that from the words of Scripture, that the problem is, is in Genesis 3, like our heart is, is, is just messed up from the core. And so as long as we try to fix what's messed up on the inside with all these outside things, it's never going to work. We're never going to find this true sense of, of blessed contentment of following Jesus. And so what we need then is an inside-out transformation. Chad, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a few slides. So if you'll jump to the Ezekiel eleven nineteen. 19. Awesome. Okay. Okay, cool. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says this. Uh, this is God speaking of Israel and what he's going to do, right? And it's actually speaking forward ultimately what he's going to do. He said, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone, right? That's, that's what sin does. It makes our hearts cold and hard and stone-like from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that's sensitive, uh, that's, that's caring about God, right? Um, part of that in, in Psalm 139, right? Is, uh, as the writer of Psalms is, is saying here, he's saying, search me, O God, and know my heart, right? It's the inside. That's what needs try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's an internal change, transformation that needs to happen. 
And then Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which we're, we're probably all familiar with this passage, but right, don't be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, it's, it's this idea that we need a transformation on the inside. And that's where we're going. That's what we're going to look at um, in these definitions and in these understandings of being blessed. And so today, as we, as we kind of put a bow on all of this, um, even though we really haven't got into any of the Beatitudes as of yet, um, one of the glaring questions that I think we need to ask ourselves is, where is our heart in this moment? Are we prepared, right? Are we still viewing what it means to be blessed and favored and loved by God based on these hashtag material things that um, so much of our world has characterized as being blessed or being happy, right? And if it is, I can say I understand where you're at. I understand why we, we, we all get there. But I would challenge you today is not to stay there. Prepare your heart. Start to, start to ask those questions because as we go throughout the next eight weeks looking or seven weeks looking at these Beatitudes, uh, it's going to push against those expectations and, and what it means to be happy and blessed. So is your definition of blessed based around material benefits, what God's doing for you? Are you happy? Are you getting what you want? Or is it based around something else, right? This means that a lot of times we have to address the problem in our life. And a lot of times, all the time, that problem is us. It's that heart of stone that needs to be turned into a to heart of flesh. Um, it's, that, it's those external things that we, we seem to use as measurements for our life. But we need that transformation to happen. Um, and so um, Ross is going to come up. Um, and actually, Ross is going to go grab Holly. And then they're going to come up in just a second. And I'm going to fill in until then. Um, but the, what? Don't sing. Don't sing. I'll sing with all of you, but I'm not going to sing by myself. For sure. That would not be a hashtag blessing for anyone. Um, but as we, as we sing this song, um, he, he picked the song, How He Loves. Um, and as, you, as we listen to the words and the lyrics and we sing through the song, um, we always get to this moment in, in our time together. And I always call this a response moment. We've heard the Word of God taught. We've interacted with that son today. Um, we've learned kind of, of, of what it really means to be blessed when the Bible says to be blessed. And now what's our response to that? And so this song that was written, it's written about the love of God. And so when we hear these words that he is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane and I am a tree, I'm bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When I think about the love that God has for me, is there something that needs to change in my perspective of what that looks like? Because I think even though a lot of us are, are believers in this room, and there were a lot of us maybe Christians that have been following Jesus for a long time, I think sometimes we get to a place where we define his love for us based on, on this stuff. Am I happy? Am I healthy? Do I, do I have a, the image that I want? Do people like me? Do I get these great experiences? Do I get good food, maybe, uh, in some circles, right? Do I, have, do I have money? But to come to understand that, Man, I am blessed because he's given me these things like peace and contentment and confession and security and love and all a whole other list of things that happen on the inside. All right? So these guys are going to lead us um, in how he loves, and, and, and you just respond uh, in your heart today to, to what he's saying to you.